Hello everybody, this is the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. This is part 11 of my deep dive into the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. How many people died of the Spanish flu? That's a question I get all the time. Why do they call it the flu? Why? Why do they call it the flu? Why do people, that is, virologists and epidemiologists and doctors, currently disagree as to how many people died of the flu? And also, why do they call it the flu? To talk about these things intelligently, I need to tell you a little bit about how the history sausage gets made. History is not a basically a gentle thing that occurs in whole cloth and some educated person just sort of, I don't know, happens upon it and puts it in their own words and then presents it to the public even though a lot of people happen to think that. No, no, no. History, it turns out, is much more like a detective story. The first thing when you're studying the Spanish flu that you have to encounter and you have to deal with head-on is the racism that occurred. And I know when I say the word racism in 2020, automatically people are thinking white on black or white on other colors other than white racism. I'm not. I'm talking about not only racism, but also classism. I'm talking about racism in terms of English against Irish and English against German. English against Russian. And remember Woodrow Wilson himself hated the German people. He hated the German people before World War I. You might argue that the special relationship, the so-called special relationship that we enjoy with Britain is in fact a function of of Woodrow Wilson's hatred of the Germans. Now, that's a topic for another day. But the point is that society in 1918 was very stratified and very, 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 you know, discriminatory against the races. It was so discriminatory against the races that they saw people in races that we don't actually see. America in 1918 was very much a changing place. It was very much a place of a new dominant group of folks that was gaining in dominance. That is the Irish and the German immigrant. Now, the interesting thing about the Germans is that the Germans were basically, had been early donors to the American population pool, right? So a lot of them immigrated into New York and then either rapidly dispersed or rapidly consciously assimilated. 
the Irish people were very much kind of the opposite. Sure, a lot of them immigrated to America, partially, mostly through uh, northern centers, but also this was predominantly a rural population, specifically the population that came to America because of the potato famine. This was a group of people that was a rural population that literally had to live in urban centers for the first time really in their lives, and they didn't know how to get along in urban America. This made the English dominant forces in American urban centers very, very uneasy. Also, the new German immigrants were beer drinkers. Beer, according to the English dominant people in America, was basically a lower class drink. So this made them suspicious automatically. The scant knowledge of biology professed by some doctors during the 1918 flu is almost laughably hilarious, to be honest with you. When you read what some of these people would have thought about the workings of the lobes, of the lungs, or even other organs of the body, they always talk about it in terms of miracles. And they simply either don't know or don't wish to know the, the workings of bodies they don't seem to care about, be it lower class people. One of the other things that just happened almost all the time with this disease is there was sort of this guiding light right up until claims from insurance started to come in that the guiding light sort of wanted to be that because only lower class people could get the flu, we don't really need to think about it. And it was only when the insurance companies in New York started getting claims based on the flu did people start to realize that the flu was actually killing a lot of people. Now, what some people have asked me on the Facebook group is, why don't I talk about this, the Spanish flu from the perspective of the military and the civilians as though it were a cohesive thing? And the reality basically is that you can't. Um, the reality essentially is that there were people in the American and in the English or I guess British military as well as the Germans who realized that the Spanish flu was separate from other things killing people in war but the civilian world really wasn't really that way they were much more class bound because remember that essentially these are white collar workers and where did white collar workers come from in 1918 they came from the upper crust of society for the most part and the upper crust of society in america was very much a, a race and class bound group and when i mean race i don't just mean race in terms of black and white or black and other people, like non-white people. For example, the German race, the Polish race, the Czech race, the Russian race, the Jewish 
race, etc. And these races existed more or less on a hierarchy, and you couldn't really move out of your station. When you think about the American Civil War, one of the things with the Civil War, one of the reasons the Civil War even happened was because the hierarchies of people, the hierarchies of, of white people were being tested all across the country. And you see that in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And really, the Spanish flu is situated somewhere within the Industrial Revolution. The Spanish flu in 1918 is truly situated in the situation where the powers that be basically are all around the world, you know, are essentially still living psychologically in a world that predates industrialization. And so they have the psychology of sort of a hierarchy of how the world is supposed to be. And you can't really come out of that. You even see that here with how they truly believe that only, you know, only poor people or undesirable people can get the flu. And you see that all around the world again and again and again. And I just wanted to bring up right now that this is a, a thing that you see even going as far back as the Civil War and even beyond that even. And that that thought process of this pre-industrial era still exists in 1918 and undeniably, it's what was killing so many people. That thought process would die partly because of 1918, because so many of the younger doctors were starting to see in the aftermath of how many people actually were dying. Once the New York insurance agencies started to get the death, you know, the insurance totals and the death totals coming in from the powers that be, and once newspaper reports were starting to be collated, there, there, you began to see this sort of a collective realization among the younger people, among the younger doctors, that they had been taught, and not just taught from a formal perspective, but that their, the knowledge in their lives, the knowledge base in their lives was wrong that actually blacks and whites and whites and, you know, Asians and Christians and Jewish people and Christians and Muslims, we were all the same underneath, biologically. This was one of the major ways that that was brought home to people. People who say that the Spanish flu was simply didn't change anything, they're living in the changes. You know, the old adage of the, the fish doesn't know about salt water because it's living in it. Well, we're living in the changes. There are other big changes that occurred because of the Spanish flu in terms of educating doctors. Science was needed to be brought in. That, that was the realization that here was this disease that was killing people that was visited upon us basically because of a, 
a world war coupled with industrialization. So we need to get very serious about medicine. You know, we need to get super serious now about medicine. And there was also this idea that, you know, you can't really have the luxury of, of believing that quote-unquote miracles happened in the body from a, a medicine standpoint. And this was a, a major change in, in medicine in, all over Europe and also in America. There was a younger cohort of doctors that was doing basically what you want to call it a post-mortem or to use an American uh, sporting analogy, basically Monday morning quarterbacking the Spanish flu. And what they discovered, or thought they had discovered, was that essentially what was going on was this, basically a collective sort of thought that only poor people can get this, because obviously, you know, so we're taught there's this, you know, a hierarchy of people, and rich people just don't get certain diseases, so they were taught. And you have to understand that medicine on the eight, on the eve of the Spanish flu, medicine was not really seen as a science. And polite society was basically bound by, I guess today you'd call it superstition, but then they didn't think of it that way. They just thought of it as life. So they kind of thought, you know, Poor people, of course, they get diseases that rich people don't get. And what's important to understand is that everybody kind of thought that, even the poor people themselves. So to our modern way of thinking, essentially, basically, like, you're thinking that the different, I guess, what we would today call ethnicities or nationalities might well be, in fact, different biological beings and that one disease might not be able to cross into the other sphere of influence. Now, let's remember that not every doctor thought that, but enough did, and certainly enough people did, enough non-medical people, that it would have been something that, that people thought, and this would have been, like, in the culture, I guess I'm saying. Now, add to that, a mix of ignorance, a mix of medical ignorance that in some cases might have been willful and some cases might not have been willful. Remember that if you're old enough, you, you know that there's things that you were taught in school or things that your mom taught you or things that you learned that no longer hold true. Well, in a major, major way, that happened with the Spanish flu. People, doctors, were taught that one simply could not die of the flu. There's a reason why the younger doctors were the ones that were so gung-ho with that the Spanish flu was actually killing people. And there's a reason why the younger doctors were thinking, you know, the Spanish flu is no respecter of class. Is no respecter of income. That reason is because they were exposed to the latest and greatest medical science. And it was also because 
they, along with Loring Milner and some other doctors, were actually more interested in getting down to the bottom of this disease that could kill people. Now, why did they call it the flu? Because here's the thing. Modern medical professionals and modern virologists and modern historians that, that know, that have studied how this Spanish flu could kill people, etc., were starting to notice that it really arguably wasn't the flu. So why did they call it the flu? Well, you know, it could be nothing more than they called it the flu because that's the name that somebody innocently settled on. It could be that they wanted people to not be afraid of it. The, the truth is nobody really understands why it was called the flu. Because plainly, there are ways, there are ways in which the Spanish flu could kill that the flu cannot do, right? Like, you're not going to bleed out because of the flu, okay? The flu is not going to give you a seizure, and these are ways in which the Spanish flu could kill you. Now, do you remember how I said I'm going to show you how the history sausage gets made? Right here, this is one of the ways history sausage gets made. People, historians, and people trying to be historians have made arguments that so-and-so at such-and-such insurance company or so-and-so at such-and-such newspaper have decided to call this thing the flu for either various you know, innocent reasons or various very non-innocent reasons. And I'm not here to say which one of those is right, basically because, and here's a phrase that I had to learn in graduate school, I don't know. That's right. I don't know whether or not the Spanish flu was named because it was just what people understood as a disease or because somebody thought only poor people could get it, and who cares about poor people? But what I do know is that there are some very real effects on modern people by calling it the Spanish flu. For example, I had a person yesterday, I was on the phone with technical support for something else in my life, and essentially... I got into talking to this person about how I run a podcast about the Spanish flu. And the person basically said, well, I had a relative die of the Spanish flu. And then I had another relative on the other side of my family die of the cold. And I said, no, no, that person didn't die of the cold. That person died of the Spanish flu. And this person, it was like, oh, my God, like they'd never thought of that before. Or they, they'd never considered it. Why would a doctor, you know, lie about something like that? And it was really kind of striking to me that here was this person in 2020 who I had told that actually your family member that you thought died of the cold because you were told that by another family member had actually probably died of the Spanish flu. And you see that 
over and over again when you look at the record of the Spanish flu, you see that literally most of the civilian health infrastructure that really didn't exist anyway, in fact it barely existed at all, but most of it just essentially ignored the people that they saw as, that they could ignore, that they saw as unfit to care about. And to me, that's just horrible. But also, like, they also kind of ignored, they, they were sort of shoving bodies, if you will. If I can use a terrible analogy, where you're shoving people into other death columns, sometimes perhaps willfully, and sometimes maybe out of genuine ignorance, because remember that most American health professionals weren't very well trained. The military, relatively, stands head and shoulders over the civilian health apparatus, such as it was, and it really didn't exist the way we think of it today. That is to say, the civilian health apparatus in America, and also in the rest of the world. It's kind of horrifying to me to, to see how people in various like governmental situations in the different counties in America treated the Spanish flu or basically treated these people who died of it. It's kind of horrific to me to think that you would either, you know, maliciously or otherwise, write something down as, this person died of the cold, or whatever. Or maybe they didn't record anything at all. There are several famous stories of people traveling through various regions of the country, and it's literally amazing to them that, you know, every adult in the town is, is basically dead. And why are these adults dead? And modern you know, modern historians look at that and we they just kind of scratch their heads. Like, because this happened from 1918 to 1921, is, is this the flu? Or is this something else? And, you know. But also, I think one of the reasons why the military might have been I guess more, more prepared or more ready to, um, to diagnose the flu or to count the flu, is because for one, the the better educated doctors in 1918 that were healthy and and young enough were certainly in the armed services, and that's in Europe and America. But I also think, maybe idealistically on my part, I I tend to want to believe that the military on some level, wanted to keep up with its people. They, they wanted to keep up with, you know, the health of these people. If, if for no other reason than there was a war to fight. Okay. But one thing about the Spanish flu, and I'm going to say this again and again, is that it was political. It was about as man-made as you could get. Not only was the... Spanish flu made worse because of 19th century racism, but it was made worse because the people in charge, that is the powers that be, at least psychologically, were existing still in the 19th century. And they hadn't thought through fully 
or maybe even at all, the implications, if you will, of industrial age transportation on the flu. The Spanish flu was the first disease which was spread via the steam engine. And this caused quite a lot of disruption psychologically and only, I think, aided in the abject terror that comes across in all the first-person accounts from, you know, maybe not the medical people, but some of the first-person accounts of the people in the towns where the Spanish flu was. This might also lead to a lot of an explanation as far as why a lot of the Spanish flu-related deaths were actually deaths by the hands of other people. Because remember, if you remember in the first episode of the podcast, I had said that by, you know, by far, most of the people who died of the Spanish flu or Spanish flu-related deaths actually died not of the Spanish flu itself, but by the hand of other people. And I think, honest to God, a lot of that might have been either, you know, an overreaction or a bad reaction to a world that it became increasingly apparent that they didn't understand, the industrial age. We must also, as modern people, take into account that the people during the Spanish flu were letting racist attitudes dictate their opinions. And this was a political choice that was so ingrained in them that they didn't even realize they were making it as a choice because it was essentially just part of the culture, if you will. So essentially, we are confronting the Spanish flu in a day when the politics around the Spanish flu have have left us. They, we, the politics of 1918 around the Spanish flu no longer matter to the average person, right? They're, we're not even really aware of the politics of 1918 um, in our daily lives or otherwise. You know, it's really amazing to anybody, especially me, to study the Spanish flu and, and to see how racist uh, they actually were back then, and not only racist, but actually classist, in ways that today we would think of as just outright silly. I mean, they believed in 1918 that there were certain diseases that only the rich people could get, and there were certain diseases that only the poor people could get. So, for example, um, we don't actually, most of us don't really think that. Right, most of us tend to believe that pneumonia kills people. If you if you get pneumonia, and you get bad enough pneumonia, you'll die from it. It doesn't matter if you're if you're Bill Gates, or if you're um, you know the homeless person. One only has to remember Jim Henson to to see that that Jim Henson actually had walking pneumonia, and he ended up dying from it. Jim Henson, for those of you who are too young to know this, was the creator of the Muppets, and he is most famous, I guess, for Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy. This racism and classism, and basically when you want to comfort the middle class and the upper middle class, 
you have to start thinking about why they called it the flu based on the fact that even at the time, a lot of the doctors would just write the flu in quotations because they didn't know what else to call it. So this becomes sort of a like a choice they're making, like almost like a PR choice, if you will. And that's something that we have to confront as modern people because it's something that virologists and the epidemiologists are confronting now. So then the question of calling it the flu, the question of why did they call it the flu, becomes not a question of medical science, it becomes a question of editorializing. It becomes a question of, I guess, creative direction, for lack of a better term. Are these people in charge truly actually trying to comfort a certain class of people even by just calling it the flu you know i mean for example the the denver post ran articles in in their newspapers as a way to get the people to self-diagnose the flu and they would reassure these people that the flu actually doesn't kill people. Now, what they were trying to do is they were trying to keep, I guess, exhausted doctors, exhausted and overworked doctors, you know, safe or out of the hands of poor people or whatever. But I find that fascinating. I find that choice of the Denver Post fascinating. Because here's the truth, right? The truth is that because essentially America and the rest of the world had a very decentralized notion of, you know, governmental health and governmental health authorities, we don't actually know how many people died of the flu. We don't actually know even if it really was the flu. The one thing that you do get when you study, when you crack a book about the flu at all, is there was a cohort of doctors that were young during the Spanish flu and that aged, you know, throughout the 20th century. And some of these doctors got, you know, fairly high up in their profession. And... In, in meetings, so I've read, they would, in their older age, they would sit around and in a quiet moment, they would, they would sort of think back on the flu and the Spanish flu and they would, they would sort of be terrified by it because they didn't really know if it was the flu. And there wasn't really, and this is key, and it's funny because if I had done this podcast a year ago, I don't know that I would have said this, but I think I think I need to say it in 2020. I, I think this needs to be heard. When the Spanish flu ended, it ended. There was no like there was no medicine, there was no treatment. There was there was no medicine. There was no cure, really. There was no medical cure. There was no medical treatment beyond just basic 
just bed rest. And the thing that all these doctors thought about well into their old age was that the flu just sort of went away. It just petered out. And the medical, I mean, the the press at the time, so the press at the time when these men were old wanted to congratulate them on getting rid of the Spanish flu. And almost to a man, these doctors pretty much all basically were like, we didn't really end the flu. It just sort of left. And that's a point that I wouldn't have said a year ago. But I'm saying it now. Because to me it's terrifying. That sometimes doctors don't know what happened. Now yes, we have better medical care. We have better medical technology. But it sort of serves as a I guess for lack of a better term, a a cautionary tale or in some cases a ghoulish medical horror story. Speaking of the ghoulish medical horror story, that is this podcast. This podcast now has a Facebook group. It's searchable as the History Voyager Podcast on Facebook. I'm going to leave a link below in the description. By the way, the music you're about to hear is that of Andrew Vickery. He's a friend of mine and has been for years. Check his thing out in the description below. And that's going to do it for episode 11 of my deep dive into the Spanish flu. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your interest. You have no idea this is the most humbling thing I've ever done. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.